Though my soul may set in darkness, it will rise in perfect light. I have loved the stars too fondly to be fearful of the night. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Sarah Williams. Oh, Matt, that was that gave me tingles all up and down my neck. <laughs> you silver-tongued really? and silver-haired fox, you. That's a very old poem. 1868. Well, she died in yeah. 1868. Yeah. At the age, age of 31. 31. Yeah, quite sad, eh? That is sad. But yeah, it's from a, a poem called The Old Astronomer, and it mentions people like Tycho Bray and all that lot. Yeah. Coincidentally, it is the birthday of a guy called Kristen Sorensen Longomontanus. That's not real, is it? <laughs> it certainly is. And I reckon we should have heard of this guy. He was born yeah. on the 4th of October, 1562, in Denmark. And unfortunately, his dad died when he was eight, and he was brought up by his uncle. But his uncle obviously was pretty into being clever and stuff because he kind of sent oh, yeah. him to, educated him to a very high level. But he had to keep going back home and helping his mum with the farm and labouring and stuff like that. Mm. And I get the sense, because he was clever, he, he wound up all his other relatives, so he ended up running away to oh. uh, Vyborg and then to Copenhagen so that he could learn. And do you know who he met? Don't say Mr Tycho Bray. It is only Mr. Tycho Bray. Oh, so, come yeah. on. Yeah, this Kristen Sorensen Longo Montanus was really the guy that was behind all the sort of calculations and maths and all that stuff while Tycho was doing his observations. And so in some ways, his data might be just as good as Kepler's at the time, but no one kind of really uh, looked at it. But he was all, he was totally into all the same crackpot ideas that Tycho Bray was into so he was uh, he was into things like comets are the messengers of evil (laughs) (laughs) it's my favorite lyric ever yeah and uh, he was into that Tycho refraction which I thought I think we talked about when we talked about Tycho Bray yeah and he was into this thing called squaring the circle which obsessed mathematicians at the time Mm. Even even though his contemporaries were sort of saying, like, just get off this squaring the circle tip. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Let it, let it go. But uh, yes, he he uh, he was always pushing the geo-heliocentric Tycho system, which is basically the sun and the earth are at the centre of the solar system and everything's orbiting around. I'd not really heard of him. Have you, Jamie? Had you heard of Kristen Sorensen Longo Montanus? No. I can't say I had. Well, I definitely would have remembered that surname. Longo Montanus is great, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, he's obviously been completely overshadowed by the star botherers of Kepler, Bray and Copernicus, or Copernicus yeah. as my mum calls him. <laughs> and thinks Copernicus it's funny is every way time. Better. Yeah. That's brilliant. I think it's funny. <laughs> you, you and my mum should get together then. Totally. We're going to do a podcast. And, and then you could become my stepdad. Yeah, that would be weird. I like it. you have uh, been calling me daddy for years exactly exactly just step daddy is no different is it happy birthday Kristen Sorensen Longo Montanus 
Yes, beautiful. Well, another another anniversary, Matt. Sixtieth. I know. I uh, love this one. Launch launch of Luna Three. I know. And the crazy thing about Luna Three, it launched on a rocket that is practically the same as still taking the, all the uh, astronauts and cosmonauts up to the International Space Station 60 years yeah. later. I mean, it's Stupid. not much different. I know, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know what it did? This this got quite a few firsts, Luna 3. Go but do you know what it's most famous for? Yeah. Taking a picture of the far side of the moon. Ooh. Don't call it the dark yeah. side, Jamie. Don't call it the oh, dark side. Oh, I wouldn't dare. I, would, I mean, I'd never do that on on a podcast not on the interplanetary podcast no. where, we, where we know that it's not the goddamn dark side of the moon oh i mean just just i just simply wouldn't make that kind of mistake um so, yeah that's fantastic what what a photo yeah well and and of course it, it was the first uh, it was the first spacecraft to do the gravity assist maneuver yeah you love that don't you so well if you think about it it's the first man-made object that has slowed the moon down. Mm. Mm. Think about that as it that as it whizzes interesting. As it whizzes round, it steals a little bit of the spin of the moon. Ooh. Just a bit, just a just a smidge. Just a tiny bit. And it's the first three-axis stabilized spacecraft. What does that mean, Matt? It means that it can stabilize itself on all three axes. What a show-off. You know, the, the orbital mechanics genius of this that hardly gets a mention is a guy called Matislav Kildich. Or yeah. Kildich. And, uh, and often people say Korolov is the chief designer. Well, this guy is the chief theoretician. Ooh. So, well, yes, of I the Soviet it. era. What a ledge. And, and you know what? He comes from Riga, where I was a couple of weeks ago. Ah, right? yeah. How was yeah. Riga, Matthew? It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And Enjoy now it. I wish I'd tried to find Matislav Kildish Street now just to take a picture. Um, so do I. How could you forget? Oh, no. Do you know, he was held back in life due to the fact that he was a no, that he was had nobility. That's how weird Russia and the communist Russia was at the time. If yeah, you, they if didn't you were, like them. No, I didn't like it at all. Um, so, yeah, that Russian probe, third, it's the third Obviously, the third Russian probe to the moon, uh, Luna 3. Uh, but, yeah, take, takes pictures of the far side. A little bit rudimental, that picture. In, in, in answer to your question, how good was it? It was, a, it, it was a little bit crappy, but to be fair play, it's the first picture ever of the dark side of the moon. There you go. So, yeah. Oh, I said it, the dark side of the moon. Far side of the moon. Oh. Oh, I know. It's so, it's so easy to fall into that trap, thanks to Pink Floyd. Um, so, yeah, it's got two... It, 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 but it... it Captured enough information so that people could start drawing atlases of the moon for the first time, the full moon. Yes. And so there was things like the Sea of Moscow and the Sea of Desire. And uh, the Sea of Desire now contains the Sea of Cleverness. Did you know? <laughs> I love Mare the name. Ingeni or? Mare Ingeni. I don't Geni? know. Ingeni, mm. Ingeni. Who knows with Latin? Because of course we <laughs> definitely there, there not are a sea of cleverness with us. No, well, well Latin you, you can just make up the pronunciation because of course there's no recordings of of Romans and stuff. So yeah, put that in oh, your pipe there we and go. smoke it. Yeah, have, have um, some of that. <laughs> Latin just like dinosaurs scholars. roars, Matt. They just don't know, do they? They just don't know. In fact, it's, yeah, who knows what a Tyrannosaurus Rex sounded like? Unlikely to have roared, in fact. 
I don't, I don't think they made that. many sounds at all. Probably sounded more like a chicken. Like that. <laughs> what are you basing that on? Well, the fact that chickens are their closest relative on Earth. Yeah, they were a bit bigger than chickens. Yeah, I know, but yeah, just because they're bigger, that, that don't mean squat, Jamie. I, I disagree. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So, right that... in, if you know what a T-Rex sounded like, uh, tweet us. Tweet us. Tweet us now. Pod. 29 pictures go. it took, 29 pictures. But if you think about how hard this is back then, so the spacecraft is spin-stabilised, so it was spinning, but then it, mm. when it, obviously it can't take photos while it's spinning. So when it gets to the moon, it has to stop spinning. And then one part of the spacecraft orientates itself along the axis so it's pointing at the sun. And yeah. because it's pointing at the sun... The other, the other side of the spacecraft is now pointing at the moon and, the, and that side of the moon, the far side of the moon, is fully illuminated by the sun, i.e. it's not the dark side of the moon, depending on the perspective that you're at. So it's fully illuminated by the sun. So the sun's behind the spacecraft and the spacecraft is looking down at the moon and then there's yes. this tiny little um, photoreceptor, that f- little photocell that as soon as the moon comes into view in at this other axis of the spacecraft, the film starts going through the camera. And then the film goes through the camera, and this special film is radiation-proof, etc. The film is automatically processed, so that means it has to be developed, fixed, dried, you know, all that sort of thing that you see oh, people yeah. in dark rooms doing. Then it goes through a spot scanner at a resolution of a 1,000 lines per uh, photo, and then is um, transmitted via FM, like analog video, which is a bit, I suppose, a bit like a fax machine. So it's line at a time, and uh, picked up by Russian uh, radio receivers as it made its way back to Earth before burning up in the Earth's atmosphere or potentially Jesus. going into orbit around Earth for a bit. But do you know what? The one of the my favourite facts about this: the film that, that they actually used, this isochrome film. Mm. was stolen from uh, this American spy balloons called Genetrix that used to fly over China and Russia at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, and the Russians managed to capture one of these spy balloons and use this special radiation and temperature-proof film. Well, so they used the stolen film to photograph the far side of the moon? Yeah, so so the the film was actually uh, American spy film that they stole. That's like really cool reuse wow. of American technology. Right? I mean, yeah, you can't be annoyed at that, America. I mean, look what they did with it. Yeah. Yeah, this, this camera. Like, oh, I'm really sorry I nicked your film, but um, I did take the first photos of the far side of the moon. Exactly. Do you know Apology what, Jamie? accepted. We're about 12 minutes into our podcast and, and we still haven't mentioned the big story of last week, which Ooh, is what, I know what you're going to say. What do you reckon? What, what do you say? reckon? Well, everyone charge your glasses because it's only the bloody starship. Drink. This was a beautiful thing. We are going to get very drunk during the rest of this um, section because Elon Musk is going to get mentioned quite a bit. Drink. Honestly, I'm in love with steel, he said. I mean, <sighs> it, it did look epic, didn't it? Do you know what? It, not only does it look epic, it is... It's quite extraordinary. I think everyone has been taken aback by just how quickly this is happening. I mean, have you 
all the time we've been doing this podcast, like everything that to do with space, like takes forever. I mean, we haven't even seen yeah. anything that Jeff Bezos is doing. We just haven't, and and like everything just takes forever. But then suddenly, it's like it seems like almost overnight they've built the most ridiculous second stage of a rocket yeah. ever. Yeah, it's just insane, isn't it? So nice. And what? What's it was a bit windy when he was giving his old speech, wasn't it? He kept mentioning the wind, but he got oh, through yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, he's a terrible public speaker, but hey. But he's te- terrible and good. He's terrible and good at the same time. It's so yeah. bizarre, isn't it? And the thing was, it's like whenever he sort of says, oh, you know, I chose stainless steel and I was looking at it and I went to everyone, look, stainless steel's brilliant, I, and I took some time to persuade them. I'm thinking, well, Elon Musk is like the main head engineer, and it's like, yeah, Elon Musk is the head engineer at SpaceX. He is, mm. he's, he's, <laughs> you know... By all accounts, he, he is the person that is like doing all this stuff. So he the man. He's actually the man, isn't he? He's the coral of 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 commercial space at the moment. I love it. The, uh, another thing that I think <laughs> that was really funny is he said that like reusability for rockets is barely possible given the physics mm. of Earth, which I think is a which is a really good one when trying to think of the great filter if planets are slightly bigger than the earth it might be yeah. really really hard for space travel full stop to It'd become be. ever like a feasible thing for them what did what's the biggest thing you learned from his speech matt um i think uh, i don't know i just i mean there's a little bit of me that's super super skeptical about all the timelines mm. but i you know it's just the fact that he's sort of saying that that this whole thing is exponential that he's got this exponential um development speed and if it keeps on going we're going to see orbital flights next year which let's face it is just absolutely ridiculously and like you said uh cough sll sls cough as in yeah can you uh what are you focusing on mate well yeah the jim bridenstine the jim bridenstine tweet the day before yeah. was just so bizarre wasn't it it's like yeah <laughs> it this was. is all this is all good and this is all good but uh what about what about commercial crew shouldn't you be concentrating on that and yeah. and and to be fair Elon Musk's response of just sort of saying uh, oh is he talking about SLS oh no ha 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 and is is fair enough i actually think that jim bridenstine was completely out of order really because it's it's like well, he's not having a go at boeing who, exactly. who were also massively behind with commercial crew. Yeah. And it seems that SpaceX are trying to push the commercial crew as fast as they can. And really, it's more the it's really more NASA and that are, that are slowing the process down, I guess, for safety concerns. Because there was a lot of people as well that were sort of uh, going on Twitter having a go at Musk because he's like, oh, you should go down to the Columbia Center and and see, you know, the, the moving... Uh, memorial and and then you know laugh about safety and it's like i'm sure elon musk's not laughing yeah, of course about he safety. yeah exactly he's As he, if. He, he's taking it seriously enough and the actual reality is <clears throat> elon musk hasn't killed anyone yet so give the guy a break and yeah everyone knows that space exploration is dangerous it's just dangerous that's with, yeah i'm they, pretty they sure know, that they are they know thinking about safety yeah yeah, and and you know that. Well, I mean, this is one of my objections to the fact that that we're never going to be using in the near future something like Starship to do point to point, you know, 
New York to Australia flights. It's just it, it's never going to get that safe for for people to accept that as a as a, an acceptable risk for just normal transport. But going into space for the time being is a dangerous endeavour. That's you know it's, it is it is yes yeah Jim shut up yeah I, I all but right I think Jim Bridenstine was doing it because he wants to sort of ingratiate himself with the space establishment. You know all yeah. those. Dudes at Congress like Shelby, it's like have a go mm. at SpaceX every now and then, and then you sort of get in their good books. Yeah, and the heat's off mm. him a little bit. Mm. Well, mm. it's all a bit rubbish that. But that's uh. not what that. Let's move on to how cool. Let's move Star, on. Let's you know. Let's move on to how cool Starship is really. So what what is amazing? And I have to say, if you compare <laughs> Starship to SLS. SLS has been in development for six years and was kind of planned 10 years ago. And it's still two years away from a maiden flight. And that's just using old shuttle parts. So there's no real massive innovation to think no. of at all. Where, yet here we are with Starship, where this sudden change to stainless steel seems to have been like the massive step forward. I mean, mm. that's the weird thing. Stainless steel hasn't been used in spacecraft design before, but but then suddenly it just seems to be this, like, uh, duh. Why not? Is... Is, it, is it a weight issue or...? Well, yeah, it weighs a lot. It does weigh a lot. So it's, you know, it's much heavier than, um, you know, aluminium and carbon fibre and all those kind of um, mm. things. But if you're if you're trying to return boosters, you've you've obviously got to go through the atmosphere and it heats up so you can't it's harder to use those other materials so yes. just because you've got this heavier stainless steel it comes with loads of other um practicalities that make it much more meaningful mm. so it doesn't get brittle when it's cold uh, so when it's out in space in the freezing cold of space it's not getting brittle but it also has a really high melting point. So as it comes back into the atmosphere, it it doesn't like fall apart. It's the the thing that I think is probably its sort of killer app is the fact that it's easy to weld. So they've been able to just do this outdoors, just quickly weld together a spacecraft. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a mature genius, engineering material. Everyone knows how to work it. It's, it's amazing. Work it. Let me work it. And I put my stainless steel down and reverse it. It's super cheap as well. So, like, it's mega, mega, mega cheap. There's a lot of steel. We've got really good of it. And do you know what is quite a coincidence here? It's pretty much stainless steel's 100th birthday in 2019. Get out of town. Yeah, 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 yeah. So well, what an anniversary present. Yeah, so people have been messing around with this. And I tell you what. Us British should be uh, have a bit of a claim on this one. Amazingly, yeah, you can. Oh you yeah, can, yeah. Because Faraday, he was one of the first sort of early pioneers and started looking at what other alloys you could have with steel and started experimenting with chromium, which is really what stainless steel is. It's steel with eleven percent chromium, and and you get the the carbon down as much as possible, so about one point two percent carbon, and then you end up with stainless steel. But Harry Brearley um, was the first person who patented modern stainless steel, and he's from Sheffield. 
Good and, Sheffield lad. Yeah, good Sheffield lad. And of course, that's what made Sheffield Steel famous, I would imagine. And he started making cutlery with it. So obviously, stainless steel is great for cutlery because it it, do, it, <laughs> it doesn't stain up and, and everything else. Um, but he then set up the American Stainless Steel Company with another stainless steel paint and holder, Elwood Haynes, who was an American, and that settled a dispute that, about these patents, and that that was pretty much exactly a hundred years ago. So, uh, yes, yeah, stainless steel is ex- almost exactly a hundred years old in its kind of most recognised modern form, but it does go back so almost two hundred so, years ago to Faraday. So, listeners, wherever you are today, please pick up your stainless steel fork and knife, and uh, let's raise a toast, shall we? Absolutely, to Elwood Haynes and Harry Breary. Yeah. What a couple of geniuses. And so, yeah, Elon Musk must love those two. So you get all these different types of stainless steel where you add in bits more, a bit more chromium or a bit less carbon and all that, and you get lots of different properties. So I believe Elon Musk is using the 300 series. Oh, yes. yes. Um, well, we could go all about the facts of, 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 um, of, of SpaceX's um, prototypes, the Mark I and the Mark II, that are being built simultaneously in Boca yeah. Chica and, and Florida. Um, and they're also just about to start the Mark III. And then that's going to be followed by the Mark IV and Mark V that are expected to do these orbital flights. Ooh, so there's gosh. been a, there's been a few design changes, but what I'll do is I'll stick all that up on um, our website so you can see all the yeah, different configurations. Yeah, we don't need to read them out. We'll, well let you sift through it at your own leisure. Yeah, it's going to be a bit boring if we sort of you know start saying it's nine meters tall and fifty. It's nine meters in diameter, fifty five meters tall. If it's tall. one thing, we're not. It's yeah. boring with with stats. We never. Oh well, sometimes we do. Yeah. But actually, just a quick one. The second, this second stage Starship is actually uh, a bit taller than Ariane Five and quite a bit wider than Ariane Five. And so, bear yes. in mind that's just the second stage of this rocket is bigger than one of the world's, you know, most successful heavy lift vehicles. So it's pretty, it's pretty massive. And then you've got the booster underneath that that's way more massive so this is a big thing so stacked up together it's actually bigger than saturn 5 so man this to be fair is pretty exciting stuff so exciting but get in there was a there was a a, there was um an article on the conversation by Mm. a uh, lady called samantha rolf who's a lecturer in astrobiology at Uh the university university of hertfordshire and oh. she was voicing her moral concerns. So I thought, you know, after everyone was, there was a bit of a party going on. Oh my God, look at this. And then this one was a little bit of a, this was a little bit of a bring it back down to earth a bit. And I, basically her point is this, like she's a bit worried that there's a, a spacecraft being designed that will carry a hundred people to Mars. And maybe if we find life on Mars, morally, this isn't the right thing to be doing because do, do we actually have the right to just land on Mars and destroy the natural habitat of life that's already there? Hmm. Which okay. I, which th- this is the thing I've got. I, I've I've now realised that in the next few years we may actually have the rovers that are going there. Your the, the Franklin rover 
and, oh, the, yeah. and uh, the soon-to-be-named Russell Rover, when yeah. they get there, they are very likely to... to uh, well, imagine, Jamie, if they find life, right? Mm. It's going to be this ridiculous party. Everyone's going to go, my God, they found life on Mars. And it will be yeah. an amazing event. But there'll be a hangover to that event. There'll be a, like an extreme hangover, and that hangover will be... Whoa! This this does actually change everything. This this changes mm. everything in terms of, you know, uh, can we go there now? And we're not alone in the universe. There's implications to the great filter and the Fermi paradox. Oh my God! It, the list goes on, Jamie. But it really it's, does. It's it's massive. But anyway, um, Robert Zubrin was not impressed by this article. He uh, this he is what he busy. said. He says, "Life is not contamination." What a perverse article! Life is wonderful. Humans are the vanguard of terrestrial life, enabling it to spread and diversify our new worlds. The planetary protectionists oppose this. They are anti-human and anti-life. He was not. Zoobs was not <laughs> holding back. He's not. He's not holding back. There is he. Anti-human and anti-life. <laughs> He also wow. he, he also had something to say about um uh Starship itself oh, which yeah. was yeah he thought um uh that that this thing yeah could be fully reusable he thought this is totally feasible he thought that low earth orbit flight in in 6 months was just not feasible and and it's much more likely to be in 2 years time I'm I'm pretty Hasten much with him to agree with him yeah, yeah let, let's go with that I I pretty much agree orbital refueling he says that's not going to happen for another 5 years and yes I think that is the bit that that is being brushed over here because yeah, orbital refueling. No one's no one's really done this, and it's and it's like it's it's a long way away from a vehicle like Starship being able to do this in space. Now, hmm. what's interesting about this is um, uh, there's a proton rocket next week on the 9th of October with our favourite Breeze M upper stage that's going yes. to be taking an orbital ATK MEV1 spacecraft, the mission uh, oh, extension yeah. vehicle. Now, yes. this is a really interesting mission, and not many people have been talking about this. Uh, and it's going to attempt to... Um, this this new spacecraft is going to find an Intelsat in geostationary orbit, hook onto it. They're going to go up into a, into a graveyard, graveyard orbit, just a little bit higher than the geostationary, to um, do all this manoeuvring around. But this new spacecraft yeah. is going to attach itself to this Intelsat and then it's going to be its new propulsion and help it basically extend the mission of this huge, mega-expensive geostationary satellite. And this is be, this will be the first time that that's done, and I think that's really exciting. However, what it isn't is a refueling mission because the um, the one of the people at Intelsat said, you know, they've gone for this mission because it's a hell of a lot simpler to have another spacecraft hook on and do it rather than refueling. He says to refueling, you have to get inside of the spacecraft, open up, fill and drain the valves, put the fuel in, which is very volatile, then seal up all the interfaces and separate from the spacecraft. So it's it's just simply not that easy. So it's, it's mm. significantly easier just to hook on. Uh, that was Ken Lee of Intelsat a, f a couple of, maybe even about a year ago, that, that interview. But 
so Bobby Z is pretty correct here. It's the the, the refueling thing. I think is going to be, um, yeah, ridiculous. Do you difficult. think there's any chance that Elon will surprise us with his uh, optimistic timeline, or do uh, you think it's just <laughs> I just think insane? It, I think it's insane. I think I think it's going to be really exciting to see. Um, I think the Mars stuff is decades away. I still think that is. 20 30 years away and and any mm. any kind of trip to mars with humans i think is 30 years away I, 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 you, we've we've done enough programs now we've done enough of these podcasts to realize just all the all these massive steps that's got to be taken least you know the least of all is human psychology 6 months in a tin can going to to mars it's just whoa we haven't Got yeah. around the radiation issues or anything like that. Yeah, and you haven't and, even got to Mars. No, no. It, I mean, t- getting humans to Mars, particularly not a hundred humans. I mean, the whole idea of a starship going to the moon and Mars with a hundred people on it isn't going to happen. Maybe a few people to to the moon, and and maybe this this dear moon project is feasible. Maybe that's feasible in the next five years that we're going to see mm. the Japanese artists go. Yeah, uh, around the moon, but not land. There's there's so much work to be done. So much work to be done. <laughs> it really is a lot of work to be done. Wow, I'm putting myself up to be a guinea pig. If anyone wants me to, oh, I'll totally do it. I'll totally do it. Yeah. Particularly when I'm old enough, where it doesn't really matter if it if I burn yeah, up in the atmosphere. Cares? Yeah, <laughs> it's like what a way to go. Eh? Yeah, like if if in ten years time someone says, Matt, do you want oh, to go Matt, on? Imagine the imagine the papers, eh? Ah, oh, Russell Interplanetary Burns podcast. podcast finishes behemoth. in a blaze of glory. Do you think they'll call you a behemoth? Yeah. Behemoth, Matt Russell, <laughs> crisps up oh. in atmosphere. Final broadcast as he <laughs> burns to death. Du, 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 du. Oh, ah, your baby dead. Really <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, Jay- well, that one person will be happy. Ah, oh, Jamie, there was one paper. Again, Jenny mm. Sock <laughs> pointed me in this direction. Um, there was the a legendary pa- Jelly Sock. Th- yeah, that is pretty legendary now. Um, the black hole, a black hole, Jamie, might be lurking at the edge of the solar system. Well, I always knew it. I always <laughs> knew it. <laughs> These Again- bloody black holes creeping around. Mm, I know. Do you know so what's what? the story? I, what, what's what's fascinating about the story is the more you think about the solar system, it's what's incredible is we think we know the solar system because what, as kids we're shown little atlases and we see the solar system going out to Pluto, but the yeah. volume of the solar system is just absolutely vast. So every time yeah. you go ten times further out, the volume of the of the solar system has just increased a thousand times. It's ridiculous. And each of these, like, new planets that we discover, like, you know, you go to Uranus and then you go to Neptune, then you go to Pluto, we are talking about, like, ten times further out each time. They're so far away. And that's just to get to the Kuiper belt. And forget the Oort cloud. That's so far out there. So the actual volume of the solar system is just this insane place. We simply just don't know the solar system. It's just vast and we just barely know anything about our own backyard. It's a bit like knowing a little bit about your garden and then thinking that you know the entire city. That, that's the thing. It's like 
Yes. It's absolutely vast. So one thing that's been happened, and it's been in the news quite a lot, so that the astronomers have been looking for this planet nine, which was basically theorized by the same astronomers that basically demoted Pluto, the original planet nine, to a minor planet. And one of the reasons why they think it might be out there is these trans-Neptunian objects or TNOs in the Kuiper mm. belt are being pulled off in strange orbits. Now, obviously, orbital mechanics is incredibly complicated and it's been running for billions of years now. So you kind of think, well, you know, all these objects, how on earth do they know? And they do these vast computer simulations. And of course, they know what they're doing. it might just be... Uh, confirmation bias some people want the planet to be out there and therefore they're looking and because they're looking in these places they're seeing anomalies so there's been lots of papers about how it can be a swarm of objects or a debris field but still astronomers some astronomers are pretty convinced that there's this planet nine out there some would say we're 99 percent convinced uh, i think that's over the top but a little bit but one of the reasons why Planet Nine might exist is a wandering planet that's been ejected from its own solar system has been captured by the gravity of our own sun. Uh-oh. Now, if that is the case, uh, there's a new paper by ja uh, Jacob Schultz of Durham University and James Unwin at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, mm. uh, which was published this week that's gone in a different direction. So... We've talked about this before in the early universe. The very rapid expansion in the very first second would have created yes. these enormous density fluctuations, which means there may have been these tiny little black holes that were created where the, where the density was dense enough to create a small black hole. That's a whole different Muse song, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny black hole. black hole. It's the acoustic version of supermassive black hole. <laughs> yeah, MTV unplugged. <laughs> oh God, I that I would not watch that, Jamie. Um, <laughs> uh, I might give it a miss. Oh yeah, I, I think I'd definitely. I think I'd be sick actually. Um, so they're, they're called <laughs> machos. These things. Oh look, it's it's an, another oh, acronym okay. for some yeah. massive object thing. Um, uh, but yes, unlike stellar, you know, when when you know, stellar cores collapse, you actually end up with pretty big black holes. These mm. things can be quite small, and a lot of them would have evaporated off with Hawking radiation since that time. But some of the bigger ones would still be around, right? So these things actually could be one of the causes of dark matter. They could be the causes of FRBs as they finally um, spark out of the universe. Or they could be the seeds of supermassive black holes at the centres of galaxies. So, ah, so the primordial, they're called, primordial black holes, uh, could be lurking absolutely e everywhere. Now, if a, a planet could be captured by our uh, solar system, well, why couldn't one of these primordial black holes? And that's what this paper is saying, that at the edge of our solar system, there might be a primordial black hole that's being captured. Now, of course... Everyone, when they hear a black hole, they think, oh, my God, we're all going to get sucked into it. Uh, but as we've said before, Jamie, black holes, what don't they do? Well, they don't suck people in. No, <laughs> they're not a vacuum cleaner. They're simply not a vacuum cleaner. They're just not. And so, so in all intents and purposes, gravitationally wise, which is pretty much all it has, it's going to act in the same way as Planet Nine. So if there was a planet, yes. really a planet there, that was five to 15 times bigger than the earth 
then uh, there could be a, a primordial black hole of exactly the same mass. And for all intents and purposes, it will have the same effect on these trans-Neptunian objects. Okay. But the weird thing is, even though it's quite small, I mean, we're talking some... Uh, this black hole would be the size of a golf ball, right? Jeez. <laughs> so, uh, and, but the, uh, even though it's pretty small, the Hawking radiation, because one thing about Hawking radiation, it gets, it gets more and more intense as the black hole gets smaller and smaller. Which, uh, and that very last uh, blast is actually incredibly strong, which is why they think it might be FRBs might be it. But anyway, this as it as it as it, it's still the Hawking radiation that comes off it is so pathetically small that the this golf ball sized black hole is still much colder than the background radiation of the universe. So, how on earth are we going to find this? Basically, a completely black object that's really cold, that's golf ball sized, at the edge of the solar system, which we've already discussed, is so unimaginably vast that how on earth are we going to find it? Well, there's only one man for it. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> well, in in some ways, you're right, Jamie, because it, it is it is detective work. This is think this is detective. It really is. Yeah, as in what what. What is going to happen is one way that they can find these things is through gravitational lensing. So as this black hole uh, moves in front of background stars, it will bend the light around. And just for a few seconds, the light from those stars will brighten. Now, of course, we're looking for a needle in a haystack, but there's lots of these sur yeah. survey telescopes and uh, massive projects like the Polish Ogle that are coming online now, which are just basically huge data-crunching exercise, uh, exercises that may actually pick this up. And, of course, they're using this anyway to try and find Planet Nine. So we may find it. We may find this <laughs> golf ball-sized black hole. I mean, what a miracle that would be. It would, I mean, it would be literally a miracle. God damn. I mean, needle in a haystack is one thing. This is next level. The size of a needle in a haystack is so much bigger than a golf ball-sized object in the solar system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's like it's yeah, so unimaginably different in scale. But what's funny about an, uh, a black hole is it will probably interact less with the its ex external environment because it because it's smaller, any object that kind of whizzes past it um, is much less likely to crash into it because it's smaller. So it's it's unlikely we'll even see this black hole gobbling up any matter and creating a, a hot accretion disk around it either. Hmm. So this thing's going to be hidden. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Imagine that if Planet Nine isn't Planet Nine, but a primordial black hole. Oh, I love that. That is so metal. It is absolutely brilliant. We, we're still living in an age where there's so much to learn. There's so much to learn. About our solar system. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, no. I need to lie down. I oh, know. That's possibly my favourite. I actually, I, I, What's your favourite? Do you prefer the fact that there might be a black hole at the edge of the solar system or Elon Musk's starship? I, I don't know. It's both pretty exciting, right? <laughs> They're both pretty exciting. I'm no no offense to Musk, but I'm going to go with the black hole. Yeah, black hole is pretty out there, isn't Just it? Just saying. Now, Just saying. Jamie, I'm going to blow your mind a little bit here. Oh, not again. No, I I actually didn't realize this at the time, but um, here we go. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned this new 
potential interstellar object, Borisov's comet. Yes. That was discovered by an amateur uh, astronomer who'd built his own equipment. Um, yeah. It hadn't been confirmed, but it has been confirmed now. It is definitely an interst- the second interstellar object. It's, it's, the comet's officially been named Borisov, and it's giving off cyanide. And it probably comes from a double dwarf red star system called Kruger 60. Jeez. So they know, already know quite a lot about this thing. So this is going to be really interesting. What's going to be really interesting is what shape it is and everything else. Here we go. But the thing that actually blew my mind when I was reading about it earlier on, this Borisov's comet actually solves one of the mysteries of Oumuamua, which was, it just seemed completely unlikely, uh, yes. unless there's far more of these objects than we think. That The trajectory that this thing had was very, very precisely at the sun, and therefore it's either an, a statistical, ridiculous statistical fluke, or there's many more of these objects than we think. And here's the really crazy thing about Oumuamua, is that it comes from, it, its movement comes from a frame of reference called the local standard of rest. Now, what you got to, so basically, if you take all the motions of the stars uh, in the vicinity of the sun, if you, if you average them out, you have the kind of, uh, what what would be the rest state? What would be you know the thing that's not moving? <laughs> now Oumuamua wasn't moving, so really it wasn't whizzing past us. The right. solar system was whizzing by it. So you've got to imagine Ooh. it like a street sign, and and the, we're in the solar system on our orbit around the galaxy in a car. And we've just gone past one of these street signs. So a muamua is, is much more like a street sign or a, or, or a buoy in the sea or a buoy, as they call them in America, in the sea. And maybe there's lots of these little buoys and street signs as we go around the galaxy. I've never thought about it like that at all. Oh, no, well, I hadn't. And that it's oh, actually blown mad. my mind. So, yes, we whizzed past a muamua. A muamua did not whiz past us. There we go. It is now a fact. Yeah, Jamie. God, that is mad. Oh, it's totally mad, isn't it? I, I, I am totally blown away. You've just <laughs> twisted my melon. It is so good, isn't it? I love that. Oh, yes. Well, if, uh, if this has blown your minds, there's something you can do. Head over to the now infamous website www.interplanetary.org.uk Matt, what would people find there? They will find um, lots of things. They'll find all the blog that relates to the podcast itself, the occasional blog that doesn't. They'll find some images and they'll find our merch store, but they'll also find a link out to Patreon where you can get involved. And you know what? I, I cannot tell you how much we love our Discord channel and the conversations that we have on the Discord channel are just truly excellent and it really, uh, they make such a great contribution. So if you want to join us and, and help shape the podcast, then please do. We'd, we absolutely love it. I mean, that is, it's a thing. And, People are already doing it. And, so what and, are you waiting for? And uh, uh, things like my trip to the UK space conference would have been impossible without the patreon's help 
So, absolutely. We thank you. We love you lots. We need to announce our winner of the Instagram competition. Oh my God, we do. Uh, okay, so people, as you know, we uh, we put up on our Instagram page the chance to win one of our famous T-shirts. And we asked you to use the hashtag interplanetarycomp and tell us why you should win it. And there were some beautiful entries, but our favourite had to be from Patrick Haywood 44, who said, because you guys have added three years to my training, I'm a junior doctor and over the last year, and your back catalogue, has got me so into space again that I'm re-specialising to improve my chances of becoming an astronaut at the next round of the ESA recruitment. I mean, wow. Awesome. We hope that that's true and that, Patrick, you've not just made that up. But um, we couldn't beat that. So please let us know your address. We'll send you a T-shirt. Let us know your size and which style you want. Brilliant. We'll do another one soon. Jamie, can you imagine the achievement of the podcast if the first <laughs> yeah. if the first astronaut that put their foot onto the surface of Mars said, "Do you know what got me into?" and, and, and an interviewer went up <laughs> yeah. to him and said, "What what got you yeah. into space?" and they said, oh, "I was I was into space, but but then I listened to the Interplanetary podcast and I thought I've got to become an astronaut." Oh my god. I mean, come on. So, no pressure, Patrick. It would have made of our pathetic lives, Jamie, actually have some significance. <laughs> a little bit of worth. We're like golf balls. <laughs> We're like golf ball-sized black holes in a, in, a, in a solar system of podcasts. But I'll tell you what, Patrick, congratulations. And, and as no pressure, but now you do need to make sure that you become an ESA astronaut. Who puts their... For us. Who, and become the first astronaut who puts their foot on Mars. Ah, oh, everyone's you, behind you. If you could, if you could, that'd be great. But that'd yes, be great. That'd be really cool if you could. Email, email us at info at interplanetary.org.uk with your address, with your address and your what your favourite T-shirt design is and we'll get it over to you. There we go. Boom. So thank you very much for listening once again. And uh, yeah, have a great weekend. Jamie. Yes. Have a lovely time. Don't forget to look up and try and spot Orion as he creeps over the horizon. What's that coming over the hill? Is it Orion? Is, Is it, it Orion? Orion? <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye, Spotcats. Bye. Bye. Bye.